0: Hello and welcome to this episode of the PhD Addicted to Research podcast. My name is Chloe and I'm a second year SSA funded PhD student based at the University of Bath. And my PhD focuses on the relationship between substance use and mental health, integrating findings from cross-country data and different analytical methods. This episode I am joined by Sabah. Sabah, if you'd like to introduce yourself.
1: Hi Chloe and hello everyone. My name is Saba. I'm a first year PhD student at the University of Oxford and my research project focuses on substance use, brain damage and dementia risk using neuroimaging techniques and further estimating the causal effect of substance exposure on health outcomes. Lovely. So
0: this episode, Saba and I are going to talk about a method called Mendelian randomization or MR for short, and its application in addiction based research. So Sabra and I are both learning about MR and applying it to our own research questions. And as part of that we wanted to share with you what we've been learning along the way.
1: Yes, yeah, so this podcast is aimed in at introducing mentelian randomization to anybody based in the addiction field. We hope by the end of the podcast, she will have an understanding of what MR is, the opportunity it provides for assessing causal relationships in addiction, as well as some of its limitations too. Cool. So to
0: kick things off, assessing whether associations are causal is a key aim in lots of addiction research. Understanding whether a particular factor has a causal effect on some outcome and what the magnitude of that effect might be is an important first step in designing uh, what could be an effective intervention. For example, although it seems really strange to think about nowadays, there was a time many years ago when smoking was not commonly thought of as causing lung cancer but now through multiple lines of converging evidence, we know that smoking is a causal risk factor in various health outcomes, including several different types of cancer. So now at a population level, interventions like tobacco health warnings or restrictions on product advertisement are widely used to try and reduce the health burden that's associated with tobacco smoking. But determining whether relationships are causal, particularly in the addiction research field, is often a notoriously tricky task. Sabah, why is it that this is such a challenging research question to try and answer?
1: Yeah, um, one of the best way to assess causal effect is randomized control trial or RCTs. RCTs are often called the gold standard in assessing causal relationship because the process of randomizing participants to treatments and control groups balances both observed and unobserved participant characteristics across the groups. So, um, in a well-conducted RCT, any differences in your outcomes can be attributed to the effect of the treatment. But, as you can probably imagine, randomising behaviours we know or suspect to be harmful would be unethical and impractical as well. So, we often rely on findings from traditional observational studies And these studies have several key sources of biases to examine causal relationships. Bias can be thought of as any systematic error that results in incorrect estimates of the true effect of the exposure on your outcomes of interest. There are a few major biases that traditional observational studies face, like confounding bias, reverse causations, and collider bias.
0: Yeah, there's a few um beasts of bias that we have to tackle, so um, let's recap these just for anyone that isn't familiar with them. So, confounding bias is one of the most common types of bias in observational epidemiology, and it refers to a distortion of the association between an exposure and an outcome, due to a common cause of both that has not been adequately controlled for. For example, the characteristics of people that engage in addictive behaviours will often differ on average from those that don't. So consider, for example, the lifestyle factors um, that a smoker might have versus that of a non-smoker. So crude comparisons of exposed and unexposed groups will be biased by these confounding variables. There are lots of different statistical techniques which we can use to control for observed confounding. So things like multivariable regressions or propensity score methods. But in practice, it's actually really, really difficult not only to identify all potential confounders, but then to go on to measure them without error. So there is always the likelihood that the results that you've got are biased by number one, residual confounding, and number two, unmeasured confounding.
1: The second type of bias is the reverse causation, which refers to the scenario in which the outcome causes variations in the exposure, rather than the vice versa. Longitudinal studies can help with this, but don't guarantee the temporal order of the exposure and outcome. For example, the early stages of conditions with prodromal periods, such as dementia and psychosis, may go undetected and undiagnosed while changes in behaviors are occurring lastly but not uh, least we
0: have collider bias collider bias occurs when a third variable which is a common effect of both the exposure and outcome is controlled for stratified or selected on in the analysis so um, compared to confounding where we've got inadequate control with collider bias we've got control where we don't want it so this is always referred to as the slightly less intuitive bias and i think i'd have to agree But a good recent example of where this might be happening actually came from studies uh, which suggested a potentially protective effect of smoking for contracting COVID-19. So the data that these studies were drawing from were people who were getting tested for COVID. And one of the key symptoms for seeking out a test for COVID-19 is coughing. But obviously both smoking and COVID can cause coughing. So as a result, there may have been smokers who were experiencing coughing getting a test that didn't actually have COVID-19. And as a result, smokers may have been overrepresented in those that tested negative for COVID, and therefore there would be an induced negative association or protective effect where one actually didn't exist. That is a very quick recap of those three major sources of bias, but we will include links to papers that Discuss these biases in more detail um, for anyone that is interested in reading more. Okay, now we're going to chat about what Mendelian randomization is and how it can help with some of these key biases. So, Sabah, in a nutshell, how would you describe Mendelian randomization?
1: Mendelian randomization is a method that can be used to uncover causal relationships between an exposure and an outcome in the presence of such limitations that we were talking before. It's a form of instrumental variable analysis where genetic variants are used as proxies for the exposure we are interested in. This instrumental variables or the genetic variant in MR are small parts of the genome which can be closely related to human characteristics like height, weight, or blood pressure and health conditions, for example, diabetes, heart diseases, or asthma. And uh, this genetic variants used in MR are often identified using genome-wide association studies, or GWAS in short, in which millions of genetic variants across genomes of any individuals are tested to identify those robustly associated with the exposure. The genetic variants typically used as instrumental variables in MR studies are single nucleotide polymorphism or SNPs which are the most common type of genetic variations. There can be multiple genetic variants for a single characteristics or health conditions. For example, over 900 variants are known to affect our body mass index. Collectively, these genetic variants typically only explain a small amount of variations in the exposure across a population.
0: Yeah, I think in my area of research there's about 380 SNPs associated with smoking initiation, but that only explains around 2% of the variance. So definitely only a small amount of variation explained. Just to expand on what Saba said, the MR approach draws on Gregor Mendel's laws of genetic inheritance. Uh, so simply put, the combination of genetic variants a person receives from their parents is randomly assigned at conception. And these genetic variants are not affected by anything a person uh, may choose or not choose to do in their life and shouldn't be affected by other confounding factors. Uh, As such, MR studies are sometimes thought of as nature's randomized trials in which this random allocation of alleles is a form of naturally occurring randomization. And it's for this reason that the MR approach is thought to be much more robust to two of the forms of bias we discussed earlier, uh, which is confounding and reverse causation. Just to mention that collider bias is still a potential issue in MR studies. For example, if we wanted to look at the link between smoking and mental health, If people that smoke are less likely to participate in a research study than non-smokers and participants with a certain mental health outcome, say depression, are also less likely to participate than those without depression, participation still represents a collider. So genetic variants associated with smoking could still cause a biased effect estimate in an MR study looking at the influence of smoking on depression. Another really key point to highlight is that these genetic variants are not deterministic. For example, all the people with genetic variants which predispose to smoking initiation have not necessarily smoked, but people who have a higher number of genetic variants which uh, are related to the exposure of interest will on average have different levels of that exposure when you look across a population. And this is why they can be used as a proxy for the exposure. However, there are certain assumptions which need to be met for the genetic variant to be considered a valid instrument. And these are also known as the core assumptions of the instrumental variable approach. And I'm just going to run through them really, really quickly. So number one is known as the relevance assumption, which states that the genetic instrument must be robustly associated with the exposure of interest. And this can and should be tested in the datasets being used. The second assumption is known as the independence or exchangeability assumption. And this states that the genetic instrument should not be associated with confounders of the risk outcome association. Theoretically, uh, this is not possible to prove, but you can explore associations between the genetic variant and measured confounders in the data. And there is also an extension of MR called multivariable MR, which can be used if there is suspected uh, potential for confounding. Finally is the exclusion restriction, which states the genetic instrument should only be associated with the outcome through the risk factor. The key reason why this might be violated is something called horizontal pleiotropy. Again, it's not possible to prove this assumption, But different types of MR methods, um, such as one called MR-Egger, can be used to explore causal effects in the presence
1: of suspected or potential pleiotropy. Right. We won't go into the depth of these assumptions, but the key takeaway is that there are different MR methods that test potential violations of these assumptions. And if you see consistency across those different methods, that is a stronger evidence to support a truly causal effect.
0: Yeah, precisely. And it's also worth mentioning that results from MR studies should only ever be considered a piece of the puzzle. So um, we speak to Dr. Robin Wooten later in the podcast, who talks us through some key limitations and sources of bias when applying MR. But the really crucial benefit of MR is that the sources of bias are quite different to that of statistical approaches that we normally use when we try and look at causal effects in traditional observational studies. So, for example, with multivariable regression, one of the assumptions for causal inference is that there is no unmeasured confounding, which, as we discussed earlier, is uh, difficult to think is an assumption that we've met. Whereas with Mendelian randomization, because we're using these genetic variants, our results are much more robust to this unmeasured confounding. So. Mendelian randomization provides a really useful tool to apply in a triangulation of evidence framework to try and support stronger causal inference. Before we talk to you about an example application of Mendelian randomization in addiction research, we're going to quickly introduce you to some of the most commonly used types of MR analysis. Um, so we're going to talk about one-sample MR, two-sample MR, and bidirectional
1: MR. The first one is the one-sample MR, in which the instrumental exposure association and instrumental outcome associations are from the same sample, and it is used when we have access to individual-level data. So uh, here the genetic variants, exposures and outcomes are all measured in the same individuals, which um, allows MR and traditional observational analysis to be conducted within the same individual. And we can also compare results across approaches. However, one sample MR has some limitations as well. For example, like Kurds do not often have lots of different traits measured simultaneously, or if they do have, the sample sizes are often not large enough to sufficiently power the MR analysis. Secondly, two-sample
0: MR is when the data on the exposure and outcome are derived from two ideally uh, non-overlapping and independent data sets, which represent the same underlying population. And this is usually performed using summary level data from GWAS. Advantages of this approach are that neither the exposure nor the outcome needs to be measured in all of the studies, which is a uh, particularly useful thing if they're somewhat difficult or expensive to measure. It can also substantially increase statistical power um, by incorporating data from multiple sources, including
1: large consortia. And lastly, we've got bidirectional MR, which is a type of MR analysis which tries to differentiate whether your exposure is a cost or consequences of your outcome, or whether there might be a true bidirectional causal effect between the two. MR analysis is uh, first performed in one direction, and then in the opposite direction using the SNPs robustly associated with each trait. This approach can be particularly helpful in addiction research, where we often think there might be effects in either direction. But interpreting results from a uh, bidirectional MR can be quite difficult. Evidence of a bidirectional effect could be explained by a truly causal bidirectional effect, or it could be for multiple other reasons, such as genetic variance capturing and underlying shared risk factors, and should be explored by further sensitive analysis.
0: So those, as we said, are sort of some of the three most commonly used types. There are lots of other types of MR that we have not covered here, such as factorial MR, two-step MR, and multivariable MR all of which have their own particular um, advantages and particular uses if you were looking at a certain research question. And if you want to find out more about these, we've included links that you can use to look these up.
1: It's now time to invite one of our guests who will talk us through relevant studies in the field of addiction using multineer randomization. We are delighted to be joined by Dr Ania Topiwala, who is a Wellcome Trust Fellow, a senior clinical researcher and a consultant psychiatrist at the University of Oxford. Hi, Anya. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Thanks for the invitation. Can you tell us a bit about your research work and your research interests?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm particularly interested in uh, risk and resilience factors for later life cognitive and psychiatric disorders. And something I've been particularly focused on recently is the impact of alcohol consumption on these disorders and more specifically brain health.
1: That sounds really really interesting so uh, since you have been using Mendelian randomization would you say MR technique is promising enough in the field of uh, substance use or addiction to assess the causal effect?
2: Yes I think it's a really interesting and exciting sort of um, new development that people are really getting on board with now because I guess the the issue in alcohol or addiction research is is trying to um, investigate causality so really proving that one thing causes another and I guess the usual approach we take in medicine to to investigate causality or prove causality is randomized control trials but you know it's r- really um, difficult to say that such an approach is ethical when you're talking about you know, alcohol for instance where we know it has so many harmful outcomes including you know cancer um so I think MR offers a alternative approach to try and investigate this thorny issue of causality, um, and to my mind, it's especially advantageous when we're talking about alcohol because we know um, quite a lot about the genes involved in how we metabolise alcohol, um, and so and these genes explain quite well on a on a population level at least how much people drink so we have some really good kind of what we call in mr instrumental variables or genetic variants that make sense biologically um to apply mr
1: great so uh talking about alcohol that you was a uh, one of your paper i guess so you, you did a study on alcohol using Mendelian randomization can you tell us a bit about your study and what did you actually find in them
2: Yeah, sure. So I've done a couple of um, studies that, well, they're not peer-reviewed yet, so some some caution in in talking about them. But um, the first was looking at the link between um, alcohol consumption and telomere length. And if you're not familiar with telomeres, essentially they're sort of bits at the end of chromosomes that every time a cell divides, they get progressively shorter. And the length of these telomeres is associated with ageing, but also lots of other conditions like you know, cancer, uh, dementia even. Um, and so uh, this preprint, we, we looked at the association, um, observational association between alcohol and telomere length and found that the more people drank, um, the shorter their telomeres. But also, we did an um, MR analysis, which supported those observational findings. So again, the more people drank, it was sort of the genetically predicted alcohol consumption, or alcohol use disorder, so alcohol dependence, um, the shorter people's telomere in the, in the MR analysis. So both approaches were consistent, and that's kind of more supportive that there is a causal relationship between how much people drink and, and shortening of these telomeres. And um, we did a few kind of extra bits of analysis that really sort of, I think, um, were more convincing. For instance, this effect was only shown in people that were drinking and not in the non-drinkers, and that kind of... It, makes makes our findings I think more robust. So that that was the first bit of work and then the other the other bit of work that we've just um put out this week in fact is uh, using MR to look at the relationship between alcohol again and the amount of iron in the body and brain and there's some support from the MR in that that the more people drink the higher levels of iron in the blood but also in the brain. Um, so that, that used mr too
1: cool uh, additionally would you like to also highlight uh other substance use or addiction related studies using mr that you might come across and you think that is quite fascinating or interesting to look at
2: yeah i think at, at, um one of the studies i'd highlight is um was published in the lancet it was in the K- china kaduri sample if you're not familiar with the big big um epidemiological study in in china and they looked at this issue which is kind of really contentious about more moderate drinking so the story has always been that okay heavy drinking is very bad for your you know heart and brain but actually small amounts might be kind of good or protective and they used mr here to show that whilst the associate the observational associations are U shaped so again you know this moderate drinking looks protective actually when they did mr they didn't find any protective effects, so that the conclusion was that actually, that sort of protection is not a causal, causal relationship. It's it's probably confounded. So I think that that study had really highlight as a really nicely designed large study that kind of challenges uh, some of the current thinking on or previous thinking on on alcohol.
1: Good and how successful has this technique been in filling the gap like how they added value compared to the traditional study designs
2: yes i think it has been quite successful it has potential to be more successful because in addiction or you know alcohol which i've mainly worked in um one of the issues of the traditional design so observational design is is um or twofold confounding so lots of other factors are um, different in people that drink or use substances compared to those who don't. Um, and the other one is reverse causation. So you don't know what's come first. Has something else come first? And then the drinking or substance use or did did the substance or alcohol use come first? And then that led to some other consequences. So really difficult to distinguish um, between those with the traditional design, but the MR uh, has advantages in that, um, you know, your genes are set before anything else, so there's much less chance of reverse causation, and then also the issue of confounding, because although there are some caveats, theoretically your genes are kind of randomly allocated um, at, at meiosis, at, you know, conception after conception, um, the confounders any confounders should be also equally kind of distributed between the two groups so it becomes less of an issue so i think mr gets around some of those you know real limitations of the traditional design and therefore we can be kind of more confident that it's um examining or makes conclusions about causal relationships rather than just associations um like traditional studies
1: true that sounds really more promising than the tra- just traditional study designs and uh, with context to these studies, what future contributions would you think that this could, technique could make towards the scientific understanding of addiction?
2: So obviously the goal uh, for these MR um, studies is that it helps us to better understand causal relationships in, in addiction and substance use. Um, as I said, of course, there are you know limitations that I think you're going on to talk about with, uh, later, as with any technique, but but this is really an approach, um, probably our best bet, I think, at the moment to, to say something about causality um, for this difficult area where you can't, you know, ethically do RCTs, etc. Um, I think the the issue at the moment is that you need really big sample sizes to have power to. Um, find anything in mr at the moment and i think that's the current kind of barrier the sample size but but it's changing and improving all the time um and as the kind of this the samples that we've got of of um people with substance and alcohol addiction increase therefore the the genome wide um studies can get larger and it find more significant genetic variants and then that that trickles through to the mr analysis so i think um we can be optimistic about about the future of this, these studies.
1: That sounds super interesting. Lots of valuable information. And I think it's very helpful for those researchers who are interested to take it to the next level. Thank you so much for being with us today. And we look forward to seeing more of your work in medieval Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>
2: Next up on the
0: podcast, I spoke with Dr. Robin Wooten, who gives us a fantastic introduction to some of the cautions and caveats to consider when applying MR, with a particular focus on things to consider in research exploring relationships between substance use and mental illness. Robin also gives us some practical tips to take and apply in our own work to try and address these limitations. Robin, thank you so much for coming and speaking to us about Mendelian randomization. I was just wondering if you wanted to kick things off by just introducing us to where you're based and what your research interests are.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. So I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Levisenburg Hospital in Oslo, which is where I work in the psychiatric genetic epidemiology group. And before that, I worked at the Integrative Epidemiology Group at the University of Bristol. And my research uses genetic epidemiology methods to better understand mental illness and to identify potential causal risk factors. And I use a lot of Mendelian randomization to explore risk factors for mental illness. And often those risk factors include substances like alcohol and tobacco.
0: Fantastic. So... We have talked a little bit, Robin, already in the podcast about the general benefits of MR. So um, what are the general advantages of using MR to look at causal effects for an exposure on some outcome? But why do you think that MR is a particularly exciting methodology for the field of substance use and mental illness? So, as you know, mental
3: illness and addiction are worldwide public health problems. Uh, For example, one in four people will experience mental illness in their lifetime. So it's really important to try and prevent further instances of mental illness and to reduce suffering. And in order for a prevention or intervention strategy to be effective, we need to identify modifiable risk factors that have a causal relationship with the risk of mental illness or addiction. And just because a risk factor is causal, this doesn't necessarily guarantee that an intervention will be successful. But establishing causality is a really important first step. So many studies have explored potential risk factors for mental illness, but there's actually consensus for relatively few. And in part, this is due to a lack of specific knowledge about the biological pathways that underlie many mental illnesses. This limits the possible causal inference, especially when evidence for different studies is contradictory. And contradictory findings are possibly more common in studies of mental illness and substance use because their presentations can be heterogeneous or they can be highly varied. And this might be partly because diagnostic categories for some mental illnesses are very broad and maybe for substance use because there's many environmental exposures at play, for example, like whether or not you're exposed to those substances. So how might we actually go about finding causal risk factors for mental illness? Um, well, the gold standard would be to conduct a randomised control trial where we randomise individuals to be exposed or unexposed to the modifiable risk factor of interest. And randomization gets around a lot of the issues that are very common in observational studies of confounding and reverse causation. But to conduct a randomised control trial for questions around mental illness It could be very problematic, so it can be unethical, uh, impractical. If we just took an example of, let's say we wanted to look at the relationship between smoking and schizophrenia, of course it would be completely unethical to randomise individuals to smoke or not smoke, and also highly impractical uh, and very expensive if we wanted to follow those individuals up for say 20 years and see who did and didn't develop schizophrenia. And this is why Mendelian randomisation is so exciting, because it can be a much quicker and cheaper way if that data already exists to search through many possible risk factors and identify some which might be causal. Um, so if there exists many large cohorts, well, there do exist, sorry, many large cohorts um, which contain information on mental illness, uh, potential risk factors and genetic information, and this makes it relatively easy to research these questions, uh, certainly much easier than actually conducting a randomised control trial. So from running Mendelian randomization of different possible modifiable risk factors, we can identify those which look promising and that should be followed up with other study designs. So we might want to follow up with a randomised control trial if possible, or to do an intervention trial or use a complementary study design.
0: Very much agree. Uh, Yeah, I think MR is a really exciting tool to apply to some of these historically tricky relationships to try and unpick. I guess with any exciting new tool, there's always reason to pause for thought and think about any potential pitfalls and what its limitations are. What would you say are some of these main limitations that we should be really careful to consider?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important, like you say, to take a step back and think about that. And there are many limitations to the Mendelian randomization method and also several assumptions that we need to make sure hold as well. So I thought I would mention four of those which aren't necessarily specific to mental illness and substance use, but that present a greater problem when we're working with these types of traits. So the first is pleiotropy. So pleiotropy occurs when one genetic variant has effects on multiple different traits. And if we have a genetic variant that we think is associated with our exposure, then this variant is invalid if it's also associated with the outcome directly or if it's associated with any possible confounders. Now, these invalid genetic variants might lead us to an incorrect conclusion. For example, thinking that there is a causal effect when there isn't or vice versa. And for some genetic variants, we might know their exact biological function and therefore be able to rule out pleiotropy. But this is really uncommon for mental illness and addiction traits when there are often so many genetic variants involved and each one has a small effect. And we don't know the function of all of those genetic variants. This increases the risk of bias from pleiotropy. But all isn't lost because there are many different sensitivity analyses that we can use to test for pleiotropy. And yeah, a bit maybe too much to get into now, but I'd be more than happy to provide some links that could be put in the podcast notes if anyone's interested in exploring those. So a second problem which is more common for mental illness traits and risk factors is that the relationships are very plausibly bidirectional so for example a lack of sleep might cause poor mental health and simultaneously poor mental health might prevent efficient sleep and these types of bidirectional causal effects they present a kind of cycle where they exacerbate the effects of each other and unfortunately the interpretation of these bidirectional effects in mr is not always very straightforward so, for example, it might look like there's a bi-directional relationship if the genetic instruments for the exposure and the outcome both capture an actual underlying shared risk factor, or if there's horizontal pleiotropy. And again, if we are to understand the biological function of the genetic variants, then we can be more certain whether there are true bidirectional relationships or if there's actually, in fact, a shared underlying risk factor or pleiotropy. But as I've already mentioned, this is quite uncommon for the sort of mental health and addiction traits that we're interested in. So instead, there's lots of other sensitivity methods that we can conduct to try and explore whether or not there might be true bidirectional effects. And these include uh, multivariable MR, co-localization analysis, Steiger filtering. Um, and I'll be again very happy to share some notes um, on those for the podcast. Um, a third uh, limitation that I think we should be really careful of is that, as we already mentioned a little bit, mental illness and addiction traits are highly heterogeneous. Um, and this can be a problem for both the exposure and for the outcome in Mendelian randomization. So for the exposure, um, it means that the genetic variants could be acting through different pathways. So let's take, for example, smoking. Um, it might be that smoking affects our mental health through biological effects of the nicotine, but also potentially through behavioural effects of uh, around the behaviour of smoking. Um, and these would look very different in the Mendelian randomisation setting, and we need special methods to potentially tease apart these different pathways. And then in the context of the outcome, having very heterogeneous patient groups with mental illness might actually need very different intervention strategies. And this means that the sort of causal risk factors we're looking for uh, might need to think about the types of outcome groups that that, that will exist. Um, And this might become more possible as maybe GWAS of subgroups um, become more common. But for the time being, this can be quite difficult to look at. And finally, just another note to think about is that, um, as we've kind of already mentioned for mental illness and substance use and addiction traits, it's very common to have many genetic variants that each explain only a very small amount of the variance in the trait. Um, And this can mean that, well, in in some ways this is a benefit because having lots of genetic variants is one of the ways that we can um, look to try and distinguish those that might be pleiotropic. Um, but it also means that we might be
0: underpowered to actually detect causal effects. So that's something to bear in mind as well. Gosh, yeah, definitely a few potential pitfalls to be wary of there. Um, For people listening that are now thinking there's lots and lots of possible uh, areas to go wrong, what would you recommend that they can do to try and protect against these pitfalls? Um, So as we've discussed, uh, MR
3: is a really exciting method, um, but I think there are lots of potential limitations, some which I've just mentioned, and many more than that. And of course, we need to make sure that the assumptions are valid for MR as well. And so, especially uh, when we're working with mental illness and substance use traits, we need to be very carefully considered in the questions that we're answering and very cautiously interpret the results. So MR studies are quite easy to conduct, uh, but they're really not easy to conduct well, And therefore, I'd urge for careful study planning, generating clear hypotheses prior to analysis and conducting rigorous sensitivity analyses. So some practical tips that you might want to think about for achieving that. Um, When you are thinking about your causal hypotheses before you begin your study, it might be really helpful to use a DAG or directed acyclic graph or causal diagram to draw out the hypotheses that that you are thinking about. And this can help to identify whether or not there's other factors that you might not have considered. I'd also recommend using the recently published MR strobe guidelines. Um, They've just come out recently with a nice checklist that you can use for creating your analysis plan. Um, And that's another tip that I would definitely um, think would be a good idea before you start your project is to really create a thorough analysis plan of all the different sensitivity analyses that you're going to need. And ideally, as well as using a Mendelian randomization, it would be great to think about whether there's any other study designs that you could triangulate with your MR. And this works best if the assumptions and biases of those different methods um, are complementary to those of Mendelian randomization. And finally, I think um, it's important in your interpretation to remember that Mendelian randomization might suggest the possible causal effect, but it'd be great to follow this up, um, for example, with intervention trials or potentially even a randomised control trial, if you want to take it forward into a prevention strategy that will be effective.
0: Okay, so in lots of ways, similar to planning to look at causal effects in a traditional observational study where it's the the thought process before things like DAGs pre-registering um that are some of these most important steps absolutely okay all right so last question for you robin we covered some of the more standard approaches to mr in the podcast things like uh individual sample and summary level mr but Obviously, MR is this rapidly developing method. So one last question I wanted to ask you is whether there's any future extensions of MR that you've got your eye on or that you think are particularly exciting?
3: Oh, interesting question. Um, Yeah, well, one of the areas that I'm most interested in at the moment is using Mendelian randomization to explore progression of mental illness. So usually an MR outcome is just case versus control. So does the individual have schizophrenia or not, for example? And if we did an MR of, let's say, smoking on schizophrenia, then we would be asking whether there's evidence for a causal effect on, of smoking on onset of schizophrenia. But quite often in a public health setting, we actually also want to know what the impact would be for a person who already has schizophrenia if they were to quit smoking. And there's no reason to think that this would be the same as the effect that smoking has on incidents. So, for example, we know that smoking causes lung cancer, but once an individual has lung cancer, then quitting smoking is not going to be a successful treatment. And so it's really important to try and think about how we could explore risk and protective factors that improve outcomes amongst those who already have existing mental illness. Um, So for this, we can use GWAS of progression. So for example, you could look at suicide attempts amongst those who have a diagnosis of depression, or you could potentially look at abstinence uh, outcomes amongst those who had an addiction. And uh, this does, though, present its own problems, um, because what we're doing is selecting on individuals who have, say, the mental illness or use a particular substance, And this can result in a type of selection bias known as collider bias, which could result in a spurious association between the exposure and the outcome. And there are methods that are available to try and adjust for this bias. So, for example, slope hunter method. Um, But in my work, what I'm trying to do is use trajectories of mental health and substance use in the whole population as outcomes to try and avoid this collider bias. So, yeah, I'm really excited about what we might find with that. I hope that it will have real impact potentially down the line for people who already have existing mental illness.
0: Those sound like some really exciting extensions and future plans you've got there, Robin. Um, And, yeah, potentially really impactful as well, like you said, in terms of intervention. So we're really excited to see that work come out. Um, Just last thing to say is a massive thank you for coming on the podcast today and giving such a brilliant introduction to some of these really complicated concepts and making them uh, so easy making them seem so easy but you know i i know from experience that that they're not so thank you so much for that no problem at all yeah thanks for having me on i've really enjoyed it
1: that's everything from us we hope you enjoy listening to the podcast about mr and learned a bit about what mr is and what it can tell us in the addiction-based research Thank you to our wonderful guests, Dr. Anya Topiwala and Dr. Robin Wotton for talking to us about their research.
0: We've included a series of links to videos and papers if you do want to find out any more about MR. And remember to click subscribe if you want to be linked in on when the next episodes are coming out. Catch you next time.